morning. At Bethany Community Church, we're going through First and Second Samuel this year, and we were, last time I was at Bethany Community, we were preaching through First uh, Samuel, really spent a lot of time in chapter 20, and so if you'd turn there with me, First Samuel chapter 20, we'll read some portions of that chapter together this morning. As you turn there, again, just thinking about how thankful I am to get to be in relationship with Newcastle. I was thinking about that this past week, thinking about being with you this morning. I was listening to a podcast and they were talking about the Second London Baptist Confession that was written in the 17th century. And they were talking about chapter 26 of that confession by those old Baptists. And, and they were ta- chapter 26 talks about the nature of the church, the local church. And In paragraph 14, as it's talking about all the different things about the local church, it it says this about local churches in a relationship with one another. It says, each church, each local church, and all the members of it are bound to pray continually for the good and prosperity of all the churches in Christ in all places and upon all occasions that God would give them endurance and and blessing and abundance in the ministries to which God calls them. And so know that at Bethany Community, we, we pray for you often. We think of you often and, and love you very much. And thanks for letting me be here this morning to open God's word with you. We're in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 20. I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. And if you don't have a Bible this morning, you can raise your hand and someone will, will give you uh, one of those. And if you don't have a copy of God's word, please keep this. Uh, for you to to use on your own. But if you're able to, if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 20. Uh, At this point, David has defeated Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And in fact, uh, David becomes uh, this anointed one by God. And we see that he's a picture of the anointed, the, the Christ and so as we look at David, we see pictures of the, the point is to, to Christ as we look at his, his ministry in First and Second Samuel. In chapter 18 and 19, Saul turns against David. But in chapter 20, we see that Saul's son, Jonathan, has a different reaction to David. Verse 1, Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said before, and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he, that's Jonathan, said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, good, It will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. 
Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. And so they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed towards David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. You may be seated. May God encourage and strengthen us through the reading of his word and the preaching of his word this morning. And Father, we do ask for your continued grace on us as we look to your word. We pray that in your kindness, you would allow us to understand it. We pray that in your grace, you would help us to to live it out. Thank you for revealing yourself to us and entering into a covenant with us through the blood of your son, Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. A few weeks ago, uh, my wife, Whitney, and I were babysitting. Uh, we were having a, a five-year-old little guy and his three-year-old sister stay with us for a couple days while the parents went on a, a getaway. And at one point in the weekend, uh, the little five-year-old guy looks at me, and he's kind of like looking at me, wondering whether or not he should tell me something. And he looks at me and goes, Pastor Daniel. <laughs> I said, yes. He says, I can whistle. And I'm like, I know. I've heard you whistling a lot this, this weekend. I know you can whistle. He says, I know I can, I says, I, I can whistle. And then he pauses, looking at me, he says, but I can't do a cartwheel. And I'm like, well, that's a very interesting sentence, right? Um, I don't know what was making this little guy think of cartwheels, but it was obviously a, a source of embarrassment for him that he was unable as a five-year-old to do a cartwheel. And it was almost like he was testing me. Okay, what is, what is Daniel going to do when he finds out that, yeah, I can whistle, but I'm a little boy who can't cartwheel? I said, hey, buddy, it's okay. It's okay you can't cartwheel. Go, go, and, go and whistle, which was a real act of love on my part to <laughs> ask for more whistling. But I, I think many of us, as we think about friendships and relationships, many of us want to know, is, are the friends that I have, am I, am I secure enough in that relationship where when they find out that, yeah, I can whistle, but I can't cartwheel, is that relationship strong enough to withstand that? Will they still be my friend? Or when they find out that I'm in a, a really tough place in my marriage and that it's my fault, will my friends still want to be in a relationship with me? Or as people begin to find out the, 
the, the, the things that I struggle with and, and, my, and my sins that, that are besetting, what are they going to do when they find out those aspects of me? Are they, they still going to love me when they find out that, yeah, I can whistle, but I, I can't cartwheel? God has designed us to be in, in relationships, and I hope I'm not overgeneralizing here, but just kind of from my anecdotal experience, it seems that often women have a much better understanding of what is required for a friendship than men. They often seem to understand that relationships require time, and they require commitment and sacrifice. And I think, uh, again, sometimes women, as they have this very high standard, sometimes very biblical standard for what a friendship should look like, as they look at the relationships they have, there can sometimes be a, a sense of discouragement as they recognize my friendships aren't where I would like them to be. Now, on, on the other side, I think, again, not to overgeneralize too much here, but I, I think that men can sometimes struggle with having a very low bar for what is required of a friendship. Uh, you can ask me, hey, are you, you friends with Chris? And I say, oh yeah, Chris and I are, are great friends. When's the last time you saw him? Probably his wedding. That was 20 years ago. But um, good buddy, great friend, right? But again, God has designed us for deep, real friendships, both with him and one another. And in this text, I think we see uh, two responses to David that help us understand some things about friendship. As I mentioned, David is, is the anointed one at this point, and the, as we've been going through First and Second Samuel at Bethany, we've entitled this series, The Covenant King, and as David is this covenant king, he points us to the ultimate covenant king, and as we look at the response by both Saul and Jonathan to, to David, we see some things about our response to our relationship with, with Christ. Saul rejects David as king and, and makes him his enemy. Jonathan, on their hand, embraces him and becomes David's friend. And we see that they engage in this covenant friendship. They willingly place obligations on themselves in order to have a, a deep, committed friendship. And we see that it's a friendship built on a shared love of God. And they love God, and that love of God flows into their relationship with one another, which is really kind of the main idea that I want us to think about together this morning. Here's what I want us to think about. Christian friendship flows from our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, God's anointed, and is built upon a shared commitment to his lordship. So uh, Christian friendship begins with a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we love God. We, we love God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We have this relationship with the triune God. And as we enter in that relationship, it, it, it cannot help but flow into our relationships with one another. And if we're going to have the types of friendships and relationships that God calls us to have, that many of us desire to have, it begins with that, it flows from that, and is built upon our shared commitment to Christ's lordship. So we're going to look at how Saul becomes David's enemy, and then we're going to talk about how Jonathan becomes David's friend. But let's first of all talk about how Saul becomes David's enemy. I just want to kind of somewhat quickly talk about chapters 18 and 19 that's paved the way for us understanding chapter 20. Remember, David has just defeated Goliath in chapter 17. You can turn back to chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, if you would. And Jonathan is drawn to David, but, but Saul initially is, but ultimately is not. It says that 
At first, this is verse 2, Saul took, took David in that day after he's defeated Goliath and would not let him return to his father's house. This is in keeping with what we see Saul doing earlier in 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 14, it says whenever Saul would see a, a, a mighty warrior, a valiant guy, he would take that guy and he'd bring him into his army and he would, he would have him be a part of his army. And the reason for that is as he has successful people, valiant warriors in his army, it makes him as the king look good. And so as, as Saul sees David at first, he says, okay, this guy is, is a guy that I, I want to be a, a part of my army. As I bring him into my army, he's going to be successful. And as he's successful, it's going to make me look good. Now, that doesn't last very long, does it? In verses uh, 6 and, and following, we, we see that David and Saul return from their skirmishes with the Philistines. They've been successful. And as they come back and they hear the, the women of Israel singing a song, and maybe Saul doesn't hear quite what they're singing at first, but then you can kind of catch the beginning of the tune, right? And what are, what are they singing? The women of Israel, as they come back from their successful victories, they're singing Saul has slain his thousands. And Saul hears them singing that, and he thinks, well, that's, that's a catchy tune. I like that. a little beat to it. Saul has slain his thousands. I, I could get into that. That's a top ten hit right there. But, but then he hears the rest of the lyric, right? Saul has slain his thousands. And what? And David his ten thousands. And as Saul hears the, the of the line, his world comes crashing down. As he recognizes, he and David cannot coexist. David is not going to be a means by which he is glorified. They're going to be compared to one another, and only one of them can emerge victorious in terms of receiving glory. David's successes will not be viewed as his successes. And so in verses 8 through 9, Saul's angry. He sees the threat to his kingdom. He says he eyes David with suspicion. And then verses 10 through 16, he tries to kill David twice. There's a, a, an oppressive spirit, demonic spirit that, that comes upon him. And he, he tries to, to, to uh, pin David to the wall with his spear twice. And David escapes. Now, you might say, okay, well, after verse 16, why does David stay with, with Saul? You, you think that would be kind of a sign that maybe it's time to move on? Uh, if you're in the workplace and your employer tries to, to spear you, you would at least have a conversation with HR or something about that, right? I mean, hey, I think we should work on this. But perhaps David recognizes and the people around him recognize, look, that's the king. And he, when he gets like this, there, there's no reasoning with him. And so maybe he just thinks it's a, the influence of this spirit. But that's not... The case, as you go into verse 17 and, and, and following, you see that Saul wants David dead. It's not just at a moment, but he's committed to working to bring about David's death. And he tries to get the Philistines to kill David. He 
tries to enter this, this marriage relationship with his, his daughter, tries, tries to get David to marry his daughter, and uh, tries to have the Philistines kill him in the rest of chapter 18. Then you come to chapter 19. Jonathan finds out what his, his dad is thinking and tries to reason with him, and it doesn't really work out again. Uh, David's new wife rescues him. Uh, then David goes to stay with Samuel, and Saul sends messengers to Samuel to try to get David to come back. And on three occasions, as the messengers arrive, they begin to prophesy. And the, the last time Saul himself goes to Samuel to try to bring David back, and it says that he began to prophesy in, uh, there in verse uh, 23. It's in uh, 24. So, as you come to the end of chapter 19, something is abundantly clear. God is with David. The people recognize it. Saul's own family recognizes it. In fact, Saul recognizes it. He knows that David's success is from the Lord. And yet, instead of responding in repentance... When he sees that God is supporting David and opposed to him, he refuses to repent but hardens in his opposition to God. Saul has no desire for a friendship with David just as he has no true desire for a friendship or a relationship with God. And before we go on, I want to kind of ground ourselves in in this understanding. We're about to talk about committed friendships and friendships with other believers, but before we go on, we want to understand that our friendship with others is grounded first in our our friendship and our submission to God. You see, God desires a friendship with us. It's, It's an amazing thing. The God of the universe desires to be in relationship with us. Amazing love, as we've already sung. An amazing truth. Jesus is a friend of sinners, Matthew 11, 19 tells us. In John chapter 15, Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his what? His friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants. The servant doesn't know what the master is doing. But I've called you friends. And then he prays for us in John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer. He says, I don't ask for these only. That's the the people who are immediately with him. But he he prays for us, those of us who have believed the gospel through the testimony of the apostles. He says, I pray for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Isn't that an amazing truth? Jesus says, I, I want to be in relationship with, with my people. I, I want this to be a, a friendship. I want them to experience the love of the, and the relationship that exists within the triune God. But it's not just a, hey, God wants to be your buddy, your pal. He says, this is for those who believe in me. This is for those who demonstrate that belief by doing what I command. 
You see, as we get ready to talk about friendship, I don't want us to be mistaken. If, if you are not in relationship with God, I, I don't want you to be under the misunderstanding that this applies to you yet. God has called us to enter into relationship with him through the gospel, the good news. We understand the gospel as we first understand that we are sinners, that we are separated from God because of our sin, that there is a, a great chasm between us and God that we cannot bridge on our own. We recognize that God sent his son, God the Father sent his son to, to live a perfect life that we could not live, and then to pay for our sin by taking our place on the cross, receiving the wrath of God and the just punishment of our sins. Then he rose from the dead and now offers eternal life freely to all who would place their faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to understand that what we say about friendship is for Christians, for those who have repented and believed. Saul becomes David's enemy. He rejects friendship with the anointed one. But now let's talk about Jonathan. Jonathan becomes David's friend. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to see here with me as we look at 1 Samuel 20, and we're kind of doing an overview as we, we go through 1 Samuel at, at Bethany and here at Newcastle with you this morning. I want you to see kind of three foundations of a covenant friendship, kind of three foundational truths of a, a committed friendship. And as we look at each of these foundations, we're going to, to see how this relates to David and Jonathan, and then we're going to see how that relates to us and our friendship with the anointed one, with the great King Jesus. And then we're going to see how this flows into our relationships with one, with one another. So here's the first thing, the first foundation of a, a deep covenant committed friendship that we want to have with one another. First of all, there's a shared longing, a shared longing. We desire the same things. It says in verse 20 of 1 Samuel, I'm uh, sorry, it says in Verse 1 of 1 Samuel 20, that David flees from Samuel and comes before Jonathan and says, what's, what's my guilt? What have I done? What's, what's going on? Now, why does David go to Jonathan? Why does he go to Saul's son? If you were David, wouldn't you want to stay as far away from Saul as possible? Well, the reason is because of their deep friendship. In fact, if you turn back to chapter 18... Look at, look at verse 1. Remember, David has just defeated Goliath. And we've been introduced to, to Jonathan in 1 Samuel chapter 13. We see his great exploits of faith in 1 Samuel 14 as he takes on a garrison of Philistines by himself and his armor bearer. And so we know Jonathan is a man of faith, a man of action. He has a passion to see God work in Israel. And now he's on the battlefield and he just sees this guy David take out a giant and cut off his head with his own sword. And what does Jonathan think when he sees that? He's like, that's a guy I could be friends with. That's a guy who's passionate about the glory of God. 
It says that as David is speaking to Saul, it says the soul of Jonathan, chapter 18, verse 1, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And and then it says in verse 3, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. He stripped himself of the robe that was on him, gave it to David and his armor, and even his sword and his bow and his belt. There's a friendship that they enter into based upon their shared longing. There's an immediate bond, the the type of bond that exists here is a knitting of souls, loving him as he loved himself, it says of Jonathan. Now, why? Because Jonathan looks at David and knows they both have the same longing to see the name of the Lord exalted. Now, what about us? How can we be friends with Christ, with God's anointed? It's only as God changes our hearts and causes us to to long for the same things. Paul, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, remember what happens to him? As he's on the the road to Emmaus, his his heart is transformed by the gospel. And suddenly, all the people that were his friends are now his enemies, and all the people that were his enemies are now his friends. And as we come to Philippians chapter 3, he's talking about what, it, what he used to value. He says, but all that, all that gain that I used to have, I, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, how in the world does he consider that a valuable thing? He used to consider that as nothing. And now, because his heart has been transformed, that's what he longs for, to see Christ exalted. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and not only have I lost them, I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain from the resurrection of the dead. That's what he longs for. He longs to to be found in Christ and, and to know him. And he has that longing, and that longing can only happen as his heart has been transformed and he's entered into friendship with the anointed one with Christ. Now, how does that impact our friendships with one another? Our friendships with one another are, first of all, founded, grounded in a shared longing to, above all things, see God exalted. And, and in fact, let me suggest to you this morning that perhaps some of you don't have the friendships that you no God desires for you to have because you're not longing for him in the way that you ought. We uh, just last week were down in Houston visiting our, our daughter and our, our son-in-law and our daughter and son-in-law just got a dog. And what's amazing to me, if, if, if Whitney and I had just walked around their neighborhood, uh, probably no one would have said hi to us. I mean, Maybe they would have, but there's no real reason. But we walked around their neighborhood with, with them and their dog, and there was like instant connections with other people walking a dog and holding a plastic bag, right? <laughs> it's like this, this shared language, like, oh, you, you, 
well, how big is your dog and how old is your dog and what's your dog's name? And there's this kind of this, this instant, instant connection, right? Or maybe you, uh, sometimes you've been somewhere and you're reading a book and someone comes up, I've, I've read that book. I say, what did you think about this? And you kind of start talking about that. There's this, this, this connection that happens, right? Is it possible that perhaps in our friendships with one another, we don't have the passion for God that we ought, and so there's, a, there's this, this longing that we don't share. We don't value relationships with, with one another the way we ought because we're not passionate about helping one another grow in our love for God. A ground of all friendships is a common passion. We love people, and we we want to kind of come alongside them to help them know and to love God more. So there's a, a shared longing that, that covenant friends have, that committed friendships have. A second thing that we see, secondly, is a, a sacrificial loyalty. A second foundation of deep covenant friendships that God desires us to have is, is sacrificial loyalty, a, a willingness to give of ourselves for the, the benefit of others. And as we, again, as we're here in chapter 20, what, what happens? David and, and Jonathan are talking, and David is telling Jonathan, hey, my, your dad desires to kill me. And Jonathan's like, no, nah, no, that's crazy. And David says, no, it's not crazy. He does. He hasn't told you about it because he knows that you and I are friends. And he doesn't want to grieve you. And Jonathan says, well, what do you want me to do? And David says, okay, here's, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to not come to this, this festival celebration that I should be at as a member of the king's uh, commanders, and I'm not going to show up. And when he asks why I'm not there, when he a couple days are going to go by when he asks why I'm, why I'm not there. You're going to tell him you told me that it was okay to go to Bethlehem. And Jonathan says, okay. And David says, and if he gets upset at that, if he's okay with that, then we know that everything's okay. But if he gets really upset, then we know that he's intended me harm. And what happens? Uh, David, in fact, and, and, and uh, then, then what happens is uh, Jonathan in verses 12 through 17 uh, swears this oath to David that he's going to, to care for him no matter what. He says, no matter what happens, I, I'm going to, to do right by you. He says, in fact, verse 9, he says, if I knew that something was determined by my father, I, I would tell you. And he says, I, I, I'm, I'm committed to our friendship. I'm committed to this, this covenant that we've made with one another. And in, in fact, if anything happens to me, I'm willing to let that happen in order to, to care for you. He says, um, even, he says in verse 13, but if, if it should please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety and may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. And if, if I'm still alive, in other words, my commitment to you may cost me my life. But if I'm still alive, whenever you, you come into your, your, your kingdom, show me steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. Don't cut off this steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And then they uh, kind of design this, this plan. He says, look, um, if, uh, if, if my father does intend you harm, I want you to hide in this field. I'm going to shoot three arrows. And if I, if I tell the, the young man who goes to get the arrows, the arrows are on this side of you, then you know that it's safe to come back. But I would say the arrows are beyond you. 
uh, then you know that you need to flee and we may not be able to talk again. Now, we know they do get a chance to talk again, but he says, if we're not able to, you know to flee. Now, here's what I want you to see in these verses. This is an amazing thing that Jonathan is willing to do. You and I know friendships that have been lost because someone didn't text someone back quick enough or they didn't get invited to a party or something, right? But here, Jonathan is saying, look, I care about you more than I care about my own family if they're doing something wrong. My loyalty to you extends to the point that I am, as I see God working in your life, I don't care about my kingdom compared to our friendship. I don't even care about my own life. I'm willing to sacrifice for your benefit. That is a foundational truth of covenant friendships. We see this in our friendship with Christ, right? God's anointed one. How does our friendship with God begin? It begins with Christ's sacrifice. We see that described in Philippians chapter 2. We sang about it as we sang, and can it be? Our friendship with others, and how does that flow into our relationship with others? Worldly friendships are transactional, right? We enter into friendships, the world enters into friendships saying, okay, what can this person do for me? We're in high school and we say, okay, who are the, who's like the most popular person that I can be in, in a friendship with? We enter the workplace, we say, okay, which friendships are going to, to most advance me in, in my career? We come into the church sometimes and we say, okay, which friendships are going to, to benefit me the most in terms of meeting my emotional needs or my, my physical needs? Which friendships are going to be the most um, life-giving for me? And when we say life-giving, we don't mean sacrificially. We just mean which friendships are going to make me feel the best about myself? I mean, maybe not Newcastle. Maybe that's just a Bethany problem. There are few things that will damage the relationships God desires us to have more than a refusal to embrace sacrificial loyalty. Let me give you some examples. Some examples of attitudes that are the antithesis of sacrificial loyalty. One is idolatry. As I look at, as I see many people refuse to engage in sacrificial loyalty and friendships, I see a lot of people clinging to idolatrous conceptions of friendships. For example, they have an idolatrous expectation in terms of what types of friends they need. Hey, I want this friend, I, want, I have this perception of a friend who's like um, serious but hilarious. You know, I want to be super serious and also super funny. I want them to be like really relatable but also really smart. I want them to be a great talker but, but this amazing listener and just a million other things of this expectations we have, the people that we would be friends with. Or we have idolatrous expectations about how they're going to relate to us. I I want a friend who's always there for me and also gives me space, right? I I want a friend who who is um, willing to let me vent all my frustrations on them and then just chuckle and say, ah, that's Daniel, you know. We have all these expectations for what a friend is going to do for us, and yet we don't have this understanding that no, I need to be pursuing friendships with those that I can sacrifice for their benefit. C- can you imagine Jonathan 
entering into this, this, this friendship willingly, even though he knows it's going to cost him the kingdom. Jealousy. Jealousy is, is a barrier to sacrificial loyalty, right? I mean, if, if I was Jonathan, I'd be like, you know, what have I done? Why, why is God picking David instead of me? I mean, I've, I've been a valiant warrior. I love God. I, I'm excited about seeing his name exalted in the people of Israel. What does David have that I don't have? And there would maybe be some jealousy there, right? Jealousy. Many of us are, in our jealousy are destroying the friendships God desires us to have. We resent their successes in the workplace. We resent how their kids are compared to our kids. We, we resent their popularity or their ministry, and it, it destroys the friendships that God desires us to have. Proverbs 14.30, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. It's incredibly hard to be a sacrificially loyal friend when you're jealous of the successes of others, right? Or bitterness. Bitterness is another poison dart in a a friendship that's designed to be sacrificially loyal. Maybe, maybe there's someone in your life who has wronged you so deeply. And, and as you think about the, the wrong that person has done to you, it's, it's hard for you to think about a universe in which you're not angry about that still, much less a universe in which you're friends with that person. And perhaps... Perhaps you need to be reminded of what God says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. This is, this is for those who are in Christ. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And perhaps God is denying some friendships right now for you because he recognizes that in his kindness— there are some things you need to learn about letting go of bitterness that are, going to, that, that, are, that are going to help you be the friend that you need to be to other believers. In fact, and this may, you may say, no way, Daniel, you're crazy. In fact, maybe the friendship that he has designed for you to, to have that's going to, to fulfill the, thing, the purposes he has for you in helping you pursue holiness is the friendship with the person you're bitter with right now. Maybe I'm crazy. Maybe that's what God's plan for you is. And some of us are destroying friendships with selfish bitterness instead of sacrificial loyalty. Third thing here, third foundation of covenant friendship is a steadfast love. There's a word that appears a couple times in the text, verse 8, verse 14 of chapter 20, it's, it's the word hesed, it's in steadfast love. We see the word covenant mentioned over and over again in the story. You say, well, why did David and Jonathan enter into a covenant? Is it because they didn't like each other and they had to be forced to, to do nice things for another, one another? And the answer is no. They loved each other. And because they loved each other, they said, okay, I'm going to place, I'm going to willingly place these, these obligations on myself to care for you so that our friendship can blossom. As you come to the end of of the chapter, you see that indeed Saul desires to kill David. Whenever he, Saul hears what Jonathan has done, he, he says, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. In other words, you're, you're taking on these characteristics of rebellion. You've chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame. 
And, and he, it says that he hurled his spear at him to strike him in verse 33, which is a pretty good clue he's angry, right? And Jonathan is grieved. He goes back and they go through the, the motions that they had put in place earlier. And then at the end of the chapter, it says, Jonathan, verse 42, said to David, go in peace because of the sworn because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. There's this covenant friendship and relationship. Now, how does that relate to our relationship with Christ? We are in relationship with God because of his steadfast love. And God, because of the steadfast love with which he loved us, has willingly entered into a covenant relationship with us. Whenever Jesus, on the night that he's betrayed, does the, takes the cup, what does he say in Luke twenty two twenty? 20? He takes the cup, he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. God has willingly entered into a covenant relationship with us in the new covenant, requiring certain things of himself, binding himself to us. His glory is at stake in our friendship. We know that his love is going to be steadfast. Now, how does that flow into our relationship with one another? We love, 1 John 4.19 tells us, because he first loved us. 1 John 4.11, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And I believe, brothers and sisters, this might be part of the problem that exists within the church when it comes to friendships. Our commitments to one another are often very, very shallow. We wonder, okay, I, I'm accepted right now in this relationship, but what happens when I fail? What happens when I, I say something that, that offends this, this person? Are we, are we still going to have a relationship? What's going to happen when they start to find out about the real me? What's going to happen when they find out, yeah, I can whistle, but I can't cartwheel? Are, are they still going to want to be in a relationship? Our commitment to each other is not based upon them continuing to meet our needs, but on our steadfast commitment to do what's best for another person. As one application, I think of church membership. You know, we come into a church and, and we, we covenant with one another. We commit to one another. Now, it's not the same type of covenant commitment as a, a marriage. You know, we're, we, you never leave a marriage, but there are often times when you might get called to, to leave a, a church. But what we do is we enter into a, a church membership with one another. We're saying, okay, as we come together to worship Christ in this place, we're, we're formalizing what we're going to do while we're here, Okay. I'm committing as I come to be a part of Newcastle. I'm saying, okay, as I'm here, these are the things that I'm going to do for you. This is how I'm going to love you. This is how I'm going to serve you. And as long as God calls me here, this is how I'm going to operate. And I'm also willingly placing upon myself, just as David and Jonathan does, just as, just as God does with us, I'm willingly placing upon myself, myself limitations. Here are the situations that I will not leave you. I'm not going to leave you because you say something that offends me. I'm not going to, to leave you because you do something that makes me a little upset. I'm committed to you. There's a deepness of our relationship. And I think in our culture, marriages, 
church relationships, friendships are very fragile because we don't have this type of steadfast love for, for one another, right? I was reading a few, few weeks ago, uh, someone said this about pastors, and it, it, was, it was convicting. Uh, pastors are oftentimes enter into a phase of ministry that gets, that gets tough and may be tempted to leave. And this guy writes this. He says, a mentor once told me that most pastors who've been pastors for 20 years don't have 20 years of experience. They have five years worth of experience four times. Meaning, once they reach the edges of their skills and maturity and true growth and learning is required, they instead... And he says, I, I wonder if we can say the same thing about us as church members, that most of us don't have 20 years of learning how to live in community, to remain connected with those with whom we disagree, to reconcile after conflict. We've got five years' worth of experience four times. Brothers and sisters, God in his grace has called us into an eternal relationship with him. His love is steadfast. And our love for one another must be the same, even in, in difficult times in our our friendship and relationship with one another. Christian friendship flows from our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and is built upon a shared commitment to his lordship. May God in his kindness grant us these types of friendships. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the, the friendships you have given us through faith in your son Jesus. We pray that in your kindness you would grow us Help us become more and more committed to one another, to more and more committed to you. We pray that you'd help us to, to love one another sacrificially, faithfully, and in a way that spurs us to, to love and to good deeds. And help our, our relationships with, with one another to, to point people to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And we pray all of this for your glory in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.